You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoy this show and you'd like instant access to over 60 bonus episodes that have never been on the main podcast, then go on over now to www.patreon.com slash attaboysecrets and become a co-producer. Not only will you get a secret podcast feed that's exclusively yours, but you'll also get hundreds more hours of Attaboy Clarence and a monthly invite to watch a movie with me and the other co-producers in a special private online screening room. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. Go to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or look for the link in the show notes. I'll wait here for you. Welcome, welcome along to this 106th episode of Attaboy Clarence. My goodness me, I'm almost as old as Norman Lloyd. We're in the Centenary Club. Yes, we are. It's me and Norman and Olivia de Havilland just hanging out here looking all glam. Well, they certainly are. Got a great show for you today, including reviews of three movies featuring such stars as Ronald Coleman, Ginger Rogers, Jack Carson... John Barrymore and William Powell. So hang on in there. But first, here's a cool little ditty I found in a movie this week that I thought you might like. This is Eddie Cantor with When My Ship Comes In. You know I hate to hear you sigh But you get blue And so do I Because our ship of dreams is lost at sea, it seems. But though it's very far away, it will return someday. We'll have that cottage you've been wishing for. We'll have those roses rambling round the door. And maybe baby playing on the floor When my ship comes in You'll have the most expensive evening gown I'll have the finest dinner coat in town The finest families won't turn us down When my ship comes in That Fur coat you've been craving is practically sold. There will be no skimping and saving. All you've got to do is pray the weather's cold. We'll have a little car that's nearly new. We'll have it painted every year or two. And best of all, I know that I'll have you. When my ship comes in I'll buy out every ice cream factory So all the kids can come and get in free And I'll throw all the spinach in the sea When my ship comes in I'll buy up all the public schools in sight And all day long I'll have them closed up tight For they'll be used as picture shows at night When my ship comes in I'll buy Barnum and Bailey And move them right next door They'll give two performances daily For the kids who never saw a show before In golden chairs we'll sip our tea for two I'll have Paul Whiteman there to play for you. I'll have Bing Crosby singing boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo. When my ship 
And that was Eddie Cantor with the frankly charming When My Ship Comes In from the movie Kid Millions, which I have to tell you about in the bonus show soon because it's absolutely batch. So straight into some movies today, I had a delightful time in the company of 1940s Lucky Partners this week, which stars Ginger Rogers, Ronald Coleman, Jack Carson, Spring Byington, and Harry Davenport. Stellar cast, and as I say, something of a delight to behold, especially as it upends the usual Ronald Coleman roles and plants him in the shoes of David Grant a penniless artist in Greenwich Village who falls in love at first sight with local beauty Jean Newton, played by Ginger, as he passes her in the street one day. Good luck. I merely wished you good luck. Well, why? No reason. Do you think I need it? Oh, no, no, not at all. You mean you just wish me good luck for no reason? For no reason at all. I see. Well, thank you. This simple wish of luck turns out to be prophetic, as it isn't five minutes before Jean finds herself on the receiving end of some very good fortune. Perhaps this handsome stranger is blessed with the ability to spread good luck. Deciding that that must be the case, Jean hatches a plan to find him and convince him to split a sweepstake ticket in the hopes that if they win, she'll finally have enough money to marry her longtime boyfriend, Freddy, played by Jack Carson. A little while ago, you were waving a dress at me. Was that something to do with this? Well, yes, that dress was given to me only a few minutes after you wished me good luck. Well, that's extraordinary. Exactly, that's where the hunch came from. And suddenly I began to feel that if you took half the ticket with me, you'd bring me more luck. What do you want money for? I plan to get married. Aha, a fortune hunter. He's nothing of the kind. Then why can't he take you as you are, as any decent, self-respecting man would? It has nothing to do with him. He'd marry me tomorrow or today if I wanted him to. Listen, this is my own private affair. What business is it of yours anyway? But David has other ideas. He'll go in on the ticket, all right, but only if Jean agrees to an experiment. You said experiment. What did you mean? I mean the experiment of taking someone who is going to settle down happily and prosaically in Poughkeepsie and giving them one little shot in the arm of magic and of enchantment and, I hope, fun, on a quite impersonal plane, of course, uh, beforehand. And then seeing if it will last them for the rest of their life. And there you have your setup. Will they win on the ticket? I think you know the answer. Will Jean find herself falling for her new partner in luck? I think you know the answer. In fact, there isn't much you won't foresee if you're that way inclined, and certainly, if you were watching a pair of lesser performers in less sumptuous settings, you'd probably throw all kinds of words at it, such as predictable and formulaic. But director Lewis Milestone makes the very wise choice to fill this movie with the greatest players he can find. And it really doesn't matter what the story's like. The true joy of Lucky Partners comes from seeing Ginger and Ronald at their romantic best, while the likes of Jack Carson, Spring Byington, Harry Davenport, Walter Kingsford and Lucille Gleason add the rest of the stardust. Ginger is quite brilliant. Her scenes at the hotel, where she keeps inadvertently terrifying the maid, are absolutely hilarious. But I have to say, Ronald Coleman absolutely steals this thing for me. His character, David, is harboring something of a secret that comes out later. But all the while, he's playing essentially a beachcomber type of guy, a whimsical dreamer who finds the joy in the smallest things. He's unpredictable, he's devilishly charming, and an utter joy to watch as he grins and smiles his way through each scene. He literally makes you feel so happy while this movie is on. It's very different to the suave, sometimes serious roles he's better known for. Very un-Coleman-like, but so very much better for it. I love him in everything, but I particularly love him in this. He's so warm-hearted. So do go on out there now and see if you can put your hands on a copy of 1940's Lucky Partners. Perfect feel-good entertainment. With a predictable plot, yes, but with a heart as big as a whale. It'll give you that Sunday afternoon fuzzy golden feeling that all good movies from this period should. Absolutely delightful. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. 
Into the murky depths of the question pot we dive and I come up with a query from Bryce who writes, Adam, which classic movie stars would be your pick to play Batman and Superman? Oh my God, what an amazing question. So for Batman, I'd probably pick Paul Muni. He's tall, he can do brooding. I think his lower jaw fits the bill. Scarface as Batman, yes. Which leads me to wonder who would play the Joker and the Penguin. Okay, Conrad Veidt would be an amazing Joker. He kind of auditioned for the role already in The Man Who Laughs. And the Penguin would have to be Eugene Pallet. As Superman, I'd have Clark Gable. And as Lois Lane, I think Myrna Loy would be awesome. I totally need to hear what your picks would be on that one. Send them to me and I'll read them out on the podcast. You totally need a superhero Canterbury for that one, Bryce. I am inevitable. Oh, you're not. You can't be. Oh, I'm insane. The Brighton Strangler. And you're the only person who knows it. Oh, no. No. We're in London. This is New Year's Eve. I... Oh, don't. Don't. You're not going to kill me. Yes. There'll be no New Year for you. Canterbury. Next question is from Charles Gann, who writes, Hey there, Adam and Schnooky. Schnooky? Schnooky? What the maybe, f- maybe it's a spelling error. Maybe it's not a spelling error. And he believes that I really am the famous reality TV star. Yeah, I think it's a spelling error. Anyway, Charles goes on to say, I was curious to know how your obsession with golden age of film and music came about. Your fan, Charles G. Well, Charles G., I think my story's like many others. I used to like pulling sick days from school, and there were always a wealth of old movies on British TV in the afternoons. I also used to like staying up too late at night, and there were always old movies on in the wee hours. And it just clicked, you know? I just saw the kind of world I wanted to live in and the kinds of people I wanted to spend time with. And so I took my newfound love and turned it into an obsession. And now my entire world is in monochrome and I spend all day dreaming about that era. I drown myself in it. I dream about it. I can't get enough, I tell you. It's me, Schnooky. Calm down. Yes, sorry about that. But remember, if you have a question and if you'd like it answered, then go to www.attaboyclarence.com, scroll down the homepage, and throw the blighter into the question pot. I thank you. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinking cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Now, it's pretty well known that during the Golden Age, stars pretty much had their lives operated for them by studios and publicity men. Scandals and bad behaviour were constantly being hushed up by overworked marketing men and agents who became adept at sweeping wrongdoings under the rug before the press could find out about them. But some stars were more work than others. And despite the best efforts of the studio men, their misdemeanours were far too numerous to hide. Such was the case with John Barry. The tales of Barrymore's excesses are legendary, from the drinking to the love affairs. By the end of the 30s, he was becoming more famous throughout the world for his antics than his acting. But I've always admired the fact that John Barrymore knew how to take a joke and make fun of himself. You only have to look at the remarkable radio appearances he made with Rudy Valley and sometimes Orson Welles, during which he lampooned himself riotously as a has-been and a drunk. And so it was in 1940 when he took the role of washed-up drunk Shakespearean actor Evans Garrick, a not-even-thickly-veiled version of himself in Walter Lang's comedy The Great Profile. So you came home. It's about time. It is a gaggle that I see before me. It's handled toward me hand. You all right, master? Never mind how he is. Where have you been? It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now listen to me. All I want for you is to answer me one single question. Where have you been? Be it not obvious, fool. I am still in the mood. I have just come from the studio. From the studio? Are you crazy? I left its stages but an hour ago. 
You left its stages three days ago. Three days. Evans Garrick has gone too far. After disappearing on a three-day bender, he stumbles back home to find his wife is leaving him, his studio is suing him, and his agent is abandoning him. He's broke, he's alone, and he has the hugest hangover in the world. What to do? Well, if you're anything like Evans Garrick, you'll collapse into bed and hope that your troubles will be gone when you wake up in the morning. But even this luxury is out of his reach, because into his life comes aspiring playwright Mary Maxwell, played by Anne Baxter, who wants Garrick to play the lead in her new play. Forgive me for bursting in on you like this, but I simply had to see you, Mr. Garrick. It's very important. If you are from the Shakespeare Society or the public library, the answer is no. It's not that. You see, I've written a play for you. Oh, have you really? And what do you think is so unusual about that? The finest playwrights of two continents have written plays for me. Now scram, wench! Could this be the start of a new leaf for Evans Garrick? Will this somewhat amateur play lead to bigger things and, fingers crossed, a career resurrection? Well, not if the audience on opening night are anything to go by. In fact, by the end of the first act, the play seems to be acting as the final nail in Evans Garrick's coffin. Great show, ain't it? Wonderful, wonderful. Garrick is still the best. Yes, sir, indeed. The greatest actor in America. Oh, Mr. Taylor, I'm so glad you're here tonight and not one of these second-string critics. How did you like the first act? I think it's... I am so glad you like it. And it gets better as it goes along. Of course, it ain't Shakespeare, but... <laughs> Who wants Shakespeare today? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're crazy about the show, Mr. Taylor. See you later. <laughs> Great show, ain't it? Of course, Evans does what John would do and takes a drink. And then another, and then the rest of the drinks. By the time the curtain goes up, Evans Garrick is ready to deliver a very, very different second act. Somebody stop Somebody do something. Keep quiet. Maybe he'll come out of it. But despite Garrick completely falling apart on stage, the audience and the critics love it. What's the matter with you? Don't you know we got a hit? A smash hit? What are you talking about? Who's got the hit? We have. The people are waiting a block long for the box office to open. Our box office? Sure. The reviews are raved. The show's on the front page. Take a look at this. And this. And this. Listen. Last night, Evans Garrick wrote theatrical history when he reduced first night audiences to hysterics with one of the most remarkable comedy performances. How are you? Wait a minute. Let me see. Brilliant. A howling success. Extraordinary. Yes, Garrick and the play are suddenly the talk of the town and box office sales are through the roof with everyone wishing to see Barrymore and... I mean, Garrick and his drunken antics. But playwright Mary Maxwell doesn't want her play to be seen as a comedy and has set out not just to re-transform the play back to its dull, audience-killing self, but also to reform Garrick and his wild, drunken ways. Oh, the strain has been too much for me. Strain? Did you hurt yourself lifting something? Can't you see, you nosy nitwit? I'm a new man. I've been saved. Saved? Yes! And this lovely child has been my guardian angel. Come, my little lady of the lamp. I shall make my vows. I, Evans Garrick, to solemnly vow to put spirituous liquors from my life forever. From here on out, it's a battle of wills as Mary tries to keep Garrick sober, while the rest of his crew try desperately to make him hit the bottle in order to make sure that the play is a hit. I mean, what a setup that is. How often do you get a story where you're rooting for the guys who are trying to corrupt someone? Wonderful cast here. I have to say, I prefer Mary Beth Hughes as Garrick's vampish wife, Sylvia Manners, to Anne Baxter's somewhat humorless playwright, Mary Maxwell. Beneath them in the cast are Gregory Ratoff, yes, the director of Intermezzo, for heaven's sake, who plays Garrick's no-good agent, Boris Mufuski. 
You have Edward Brophy as the lone shark trying to catch Mafuski. Lionel Atwill is a hoot as one of the play's supporting players. But it is absolutely impossible to see past Barrymore, though. I mean, my goodness. Most of the belly laughs I let out weren't even at the jokes themselves, but just the sheer delight with which Barrymore delivers every single line in the script. Uh, let me hear you read a few lines, my dear. <clears throat> I have waited for you these many days and nights, hoping that you would return to my arms. I thought you'd never come, Hugo. I feared you were dead. That's very good, very good. Charming, charming. Now, what's my line? It's torture to stay away from you so long. Huh. I beg your pardon? It was torture to stay away from you so long. Thank you. It was torture. My love, bleak, desolate torture, to stay away from you so long. You shall never know how it was for me. Such emptiness, such loneliness, such... <clears throat> Can't you even read a line like that? You're standing all wrong, you know. You're looking all wrong. Your inflection's all wrong, you acrobat. How dare you criticize my acting? What do you know about how a woman really feels? I don't have to know anything about how a woman feels. I can smell, can't I? He is so... Brilliant. I think as a film it needs work, but as a piece of sheer entertainment, it's hard to deny. You have one of cinema's all-time greatest talents turned Hellraiser, showing off both of those sides of himself with absolute glee. I mean, his entrance into the film alone will make you burst into laughter. It's a really funny, really charming movie, crowned by a performance for the ages. If you haven't seen it, 1940's The Great Profile will make you fall in love with John Barrymore all over again. Oh, Johnny, oh, Johnny, how you can love. Oh, Johnny, oh, Johnny, heaven's above. You make my sad heart jump with joy. And when you're near, I just can't sit still a minute. I'm so, oh, Johnny, oh, Johnny, please tell me. What makes me love you so? You're not handsome, it's true. But when I look at you, I just oh Johnny, oh Johnny, oh. All the girls are crazy about a certain little lad. Although he's very, very bad, he could be oh so good when he wanted to. He understood about love and other things For every girl in town followed him around Just to hold his hand and sing Oh, Johnny! Oh, Johnny, Johnny, how you can love Oh, Johnny! Oh, Johnny, Johnny, heaven up above, way above You make my sad heart jump with joy And when you're near, I just can't sit still another minute Oh, Johnny! Oh, Johnny, Johnny, please tell me, dear, what makes me love you so? You're not handsome, it is true, but when I look at you, I just, oh, Johnny, 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 That was the Andrews Sisters with Oh Johnny Oh. Incidentally, the theme music to The Great Profile. Lovely. Last film for you today is a sort of comedy, sort of drama, sort of thriller at one point, and stars William Powell, Margaret Lindsay, Ruth Donnelly, and Arthur Hole. It's from 1933, and its name is Private Detective 62. I haven't much time, so suppose we get busy. Right. We've succeeded in getting the plans of the floors, above and below. Also, the layout of the corridors and the adjoining building. Satisfactory? 
I think that covers everything. You've drawn a tough assignment this time, old man. And if you're caught, you probably will be... Uh... Sort of a uh, man without a country. Well, let us say a man without a job. Or both. So you heard there the intriguing opening to the film, which, as it begins life, really looks as though it'll be an espionage thriller. It's all shadows and dark doorways and clandestine meetings. That very exchange you heard there between Powell and his boss is followed by some drastic and very jarring exposition in the form of several newspaper headlines in which we find out that Powell's character, Donald Free, was indeed caught during his secret mission and has been deported from France to the US. Very strange decision not to show that bit. Anyway, we rejoin Free on a freighter that's nearing New York Harbor. You have enjoyed your trip, monsieur, yes? I've been overwhelmed. Mm, it's too bad it must end so soon. Meaning what? I hear a wireless from Paris. I'm instructed before docking at New York to transfer you to the steamship Patricia, leaving for Cherbourg today. You are to be returned to France for further investigations. And if you have enjoyed your trip on this ship, monsieur, wait till you're aboard the Patricia. You mean I'm not even going to land? That is correct, monsieur. But one punch and a short swim later, Free is, well, free. And bumming around New York City in search of a job. But due to his notoriety, jobs are hard to come by. That is until he runs across the unscrupulous, peerless detective agency run by sassy secretary Amy and her sleazy boss, Hogan, played by Arthur Hole. So what's the idea? Who are you? I'm your new partner. My partner? Say, your face is familiar. Well, it ought to be. It's been around a lot. What are you doing in my office? Office? I thought this was your bedroom. I just told you I'm your new partner. Partner? Say, I ain't got enough business to share with a housefly. Well, when I get through here, you'll have so much business, you'll have to incorporate. Money. Believe it or not, it is money. Say, it's so long since I've seen any money, I forget whether you eat it or eat with it. Until you and I have a little understanding, you don't do anything with it. Now, get this. You've got a license to be a private detective, haven't you? Uh-huh. But you haven't any clients. Well, I've got a client, but I haven't any license. Well? Well, am I your partner, or do I take my business elsewhere? A few successful cases later, Free and Hogan are running the most popular detective agency in New York. But Hogan is a little too fond of the dollars, and through some very shady connections, he decides there must be a more crooked way to get rich quick. Name is Reynolds, huh? She's been coming to my place for a long time now. And lately, she started winning. Every night, it's three grand or four grand or five grand even. You know, I've tried cold decking her, tilting the wheel, but she cleans up anyway. Well, now she's into me for 45 grand. Well, what's 45,000 to you? No more than 22,500 is to you. What do you mean? What do I mean? Partners split losses as well as winnings, don't they? Keep quiet, will you? What's the matter? Ain't you cutting free in on this sideline with me? What he don't know won't hurt him. Besides, he's got what he calls ethics. Ethics? <laughs> In a racket like this. As I said at the top, hard to know where to put this one, really. It definitely begins with intrigue before moving into quite the charming little comedy. Powell and his new detective agency are all kinds of watchable, and I was really hoping that the rest of the film was going to be more of the same. It then does a bit of a U-turn, and it tries for dramatic as Powell falls in love while trying to protect society gambler Janet Reynolds, played by Margaret Lindsay. And the end is total melodrama. Still, it's brisk, it's fun, it has a wonderful William Powell performance at its head, and when it ended after a mere 66 minutes, I did find myself missing it somewhat. I always associate William Powell with MGM, and certainly I think he did his best work for them in the company of the likes of Myrna Loy. This little phase where he went to Warner Brothers really does look like an odd blip, on his career chart, even though it's pretty wonderful to see him beneath the Warner Shield. I have to say, despite the fact that I do like him in these kind of movies, I think this one in particular would have worked better with Jimmy Cagney in the lead. I can definitely imagine him there, but it's also so cool to see William Powell slumming it and raising the quality of the film. Short, sharp fun then from a studio that really knew their audience. Private Detective 62 from 1933 is very watchable indeed. No idea why it's called Private Detective 62, though. Well, for your radio entertainment today, I thought we'd enjoy one of my favorites, an episode of The Rudy Valley Show in which John Barrymore goes toe-to-toe with none other than Lionel Barrymore.
Yes, along with Rudy and John, we also have Lionel, who popped along one fine evening to record a very special appearance with his brother. Tell me, did you ever think you'd hear Mr. Potter singing? This is truly wonderful. Enjoy, and I will see you afterwards. The field test system of laboratory protection presents Rudy Valley with John Barrymore and our most honored guest, Lionel Barrymore. I'll give you a smile for a smile A song for a song for a while I'll give you a heart for a moment sublime Right from the start We'll have a grand time Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rudy Valley welcoming you to another SEAL test program. In our many pleasant weeks in the air, we have presented a great many radio firsts. But tonight, tops them all. Tonight, for the first time before our radio microphone, the talented brothers John Barrymore and Lionel Barrymore come face to face. <laughs> That's what happens when Barrymore meets Barrymore. Yes. If you want some brilliant acting for almost any kind of part, just, just call on Leonel and John. To make you laugh and make you cry or stir your very heart, just call on Leonel and John. If you're looking for a profile that'll make fair ladies swoon, or a flowery speech romantic meet the mellow yellow moon, or if you prefer a villain who forecloses prompt at noon, just, just call on Leonel and John. If you want a bit of Shakespeare that is delicate and rare, just call on Lionel and John. If you want the old professor who advises Doc Kildare, just call on Lionel and John. For a vivid, vicious viper or the meekest little lamb, be it tragedy or comedy, these brothers score a slam. So if you dote on things artistic or a healthy slice of ham, just call on Yes, gentlemen, this is indeed a pleasure, having two such famous brothers on our show. John Barrymore, the great profile, and Lionel Barrymore, the, uh, the, uh, the Lionel, they call your brother the great profile. What do they call you? Nearest responsible relative who owns property. <laughs> Now, look here, me perky posse moon, and you peppily meat. You sputtered like an outboard motor. <laughs> I wouldn't talk, Lionel. Your acting consists of... <laughs> now, see here, Kildare. Now, you see here, Brother John. Gentlemen, gentlemen, remember that you're gentlemen. Yes, you're partly right. Yes. <laughs> Besides, Lionel, you shouldn't chastise your bonny baby brother. Baby brother. Well, at your age, you couldn't be baby brother to a California redwood. <laughs> you know, that's something I've always wondered about. Lionel, are you older than John? I used to be, but he caught up and passed me. <laughs> I'll wager you could tell us a lot about John's childhood. First or second? <laughs> suppose, suppose we take them in chronological order. Yes, let us go back to the days of John and Lionel's babyhood. Back, back, back. Whoa, you've backed up far enough. <laughs> Lead us on to the nursery, Papa Rudy. Barrymore. Ah, good evening, my dear. Good, good evening. How are my two little, uh, uh, what are those little pink things again? You mean babies? Oh, yes, yes, that's what I mean. How are my two little bouncing, bouncing... Babies. Thank you. Rover and Tom, isn't it? Oh, no, that's our dog and cat. Our babies' names are Lionel and John. Don't you remember? We named John after John Quincy Adams. Oh, yes, shortly after. Oh, I say, do you mind if I take a look at our, uh, our, uh, what do you call those things again? Babies. Thank you. Aren't they cute? Yes, they are. But I say. What? 
Aren't they a bit young to have their faces powdered? Faces, he says. <laughs> I think I'll amuse them a bit. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. Lionel, if he tickles my foot once more, he's going to get that other little piggy right in the profile. <laughs> Lionel, say da-da. Lionel, say goo-goo. Lionel, say gaga. Goo-goo. Gaga. Gaga. For this, I had to rush over from MGM. <laughs> Well, this certainly is a night of stars, and still you haven't met them all. Rudy, will you introduce our next guest? Gladly, Bill. An introduction, boys. Seal Test now presents a sensational new star, which is making a personal appearance, beginning today at Seal Test ice cream dealers everywhere. It's black raspberry ice cream, the Seal Test flavor for May. Thank you, Rudy. Folks, we've plundered the rich storehouses of nature to bring you this luscious treat. We've taken plump black raspberries at the very height of their juicy sweetness. We've taken sweet golden cream from fine herds. We've taken fine sugar. And with other pure ingredients, we've blended and frozen a taste-tingling black raspberry ice cream. Don't miss this thrilling berry-flavored ice cream. It's available only during May. So serve it often at home. And ask for it in tall, frosty sodas and berry-topped sundaes at your favorite fountain. But just a word of caution. Make sure you're getting the original and genuine Seal Test black raspberry ice cream. Ask for it in the modern red, white, and gray Seal Test pint package at stores displaying the red and white Seal Test symbol of quality and purity. A little later, we'll tell you where to buy it in your community. Having enjoyed the rare privilege of eavesdropping into the childhood of the Barrymore brothers, let us now turn back the clock to their school days. Is there a grandfather's clock in the house? <laughs> How true, Bud. <laughs> children, children. Jonathan, Lionel, hurry. Always late, those two, always late. Good morning, pupils. Good morning, Mr. Pips. Squeak. <laughs> Sit down, children. I shall read you a merry, merry story to start off this happy, happy morning. That practically ruins the morning. <laughs> Quiet, Johnny. Now, once upon a time, there was a little red hen. The little red hen found some wheat. Aha, cried the little red hen. Who will help me plant the wheat? Not I, said Ducky Lucky. Not I, said Turkey Lurkey. Not I, said Skunky Wunky. Boys, boys, are you listening? Not I, said Johnny Wanny. <laughs> Not I, said Lionel Wynel. That's just a lot of hooey-fooey. <laughs> Why, good gracious to Betsy. Children, now let us all rise and sing our class song. Oh, teacher, dear, we learned a new song. Oh, how nice, Johnny. I'd like to hear it. That's what you think. <laughs> Wait, first let me give you the pitch. <laughs> now that's the pitch. <laughs> Sounds like a foul ball. Never <laughs> you mind, please sing me your song. Come on, fellas. We, we brushed brush our teeth, teeth and combed our hair, teacher dear. We brushed our faces everywhere, teacher dear. We brushed our teeth and combed our hair for Mademoiselle from Armageddon. Inky dinky Polly Lionel, I can see that you two are quite a pair of young rascals. I'll bet John was a terror when he got a little older, say around 16 or 17. Oh, on the contrary, Rudy. Uh, during his teens, John was a very bashful young man. Would you believe it? No, I wouldn't. He really was. Why, I remember the night of his 16th birthday. I just caught John and given him his bar. 16 years old and you had to catch him to give him a bath? Oh, we still do. <laughs> but uh, let's skip that, Rudy. Very well. What was the next important event in the career of the Barrymore Frayers? 
Well, skipping quickly over some terrible thespian endeavors, we headed for Broadway, Rudy. Of course, little old New York was quite different when we first hit the town. Remember the horse cars and the Bowery, Rudy? Well, no, but my granny told me about them. But here's what I do remember. The Bowery, the Bowery, they say such things, they do such things. On the Bowery, the Bowery, I'll never go there anymore. She's my sweetheart, I'm her boy. She's my Annie, I'm her Joe. Soon we'll marry, never to part. Little Annie Rooney is my sweetheart. Baby, baby, give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. But you look sweet with your great big feet on a bicycle built. Or two, the end. And so it was that the Barrymore brothers, heeding the call of the stage, arrived on Broadway. John was the first to get a job. Broadway first heard his glorious dramatic voice when he said those never-to-be-forgotten words. Extra paper! Read all about it! Brutus killed Caesar! Read all about it! Extra! <laughs> Lionel, however, had better luck. Like his illustrious forebears, he landed within the hallowed walls of a great Broadway theater. All New York society had turned out, as on his opening night, young Lionel Barrymore was heard to say, Bonbons, peppermints, lemonade. Ah, <laughs> uh, those were the great days, Rudy. Uh, did John never tell you how nervous we were the first night our play really opened on Broadway? No, but I heard how nervous you were the night it closed. Well, same thing. Same night. <laughs> uh, well, we finally decided to team up and do a vaudeville act. Rudy, you should have seen us in those days. <laughs> Going from small-time agent to smaller-time agent. Ah. Hmm. Good morrow, me good agent. Yes, good morrow. This is your lucky day. I doubt it. And who are you? I'm Lionel. I'm John. We are Barrymore and Barrymore. No act can carry more. So buy us, don't carry more. Hello, hello, hello. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Here's your hat and there's the door. That's all there is. There is no more. Wait, Valley, you can't throw us out like this. We're great. We're colossal. We're destitute. Well, I could use a couple of comics. Are you comics? Are we comics? Ha! Tell them, brother. <laughs> yes, we're Barrymore and Barrymore. Funny gags and witty patter. We don't make sense and it doesn't matter. <laughs> Say, John. What is it, Lionel? Where do all the bugs go in the wintertime? I don't know, Lionel. Where do all the bugs go in the wintertime? <laughs> you can search me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Valley. As a taxidermist said to the eagle, how do you like our stuff? <laughs> Gentlemen, as the wife said to the hen-pecked husband as she pointed to the rug, beat it. <laughs> Crime marches home. Then after many triumphs on stage and screen, came the crowning achievement of John Barrymore's career. He joined the Rudy Valley program. Then on the fateful night of October 17, 1940, while John made his radio debut... Brother Lionel sat tensely at his one tube crystal set, listening. I'm Rudy the Cutie, the crooning patootie, the vagabond lover from Maine. I am Barrymore, J. Barrymore. I'm John, the great pro. <laughs> How could you have done this to me? John, John, you've left me all for lost. The sheep's in the meadow, and you're in the corn. (laughs) 
Evening, John. Evening, Lionel. God jokes, I'm exhausted. Twelve hours in the same studio with that Rudy Valley. John, remember, we weren't to mention that name in this house. <laughs> but it's a living, brother. Lack of money is no excuse for loss of dignity. You're a Barrymore. You have background and tradition. You seem to forget how much the Barrymores owe to the public. You seem to forget. You're way ahead of me. <laughs> you seem to forget how much the Barrymores owe. Now, look here, Stinky. <laughs> Stinky? Don't forget I'm John Barrymore, the clown prince of the American Philippine. <laughs> you may be the clown prince of the American Philippine, but you're still stinky to me. <laughs> ah, you're just jealous. Jealous that I'm on the Rudy Valley program and you're not jealous. <laughs> Why wild horses couldn't drag me to that show? Hello? Barrymore Home for Aging Profiles? <laughs> Lionel speaking. Hello, Lionel. This is Rudy Valley. Oh, Rudy Valley, is it indeed? Well, well. Uh, say, Lionel, I call to ask you to appear on my program next week. Me? Appear on that program of yours? I'd love to. <laughs> Shake hands with the new Stinky. Quiet. <laughs> uh, shall we discuss the contract now? No, uh, come over to my house for dinner tomorrow night and we'll talk about it. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, but, uh, now, does that uh, take care of everything, sir? No, Lionel. There's another matter or two I want to discuss. Very important. What? Well, first of all... Deposit five cents for overtime, please. Well, I guess that's everything. So long. <laughs> well, we promised to tell you where to buy that sensational new Seal Test black raspberry ice cream. So here we go to all of those communities where Seal Test milk and ice cream are sold. Ready? Valley's gracious invitation, the Barrymore boys arrived the following night at the Valley Homestead. Well, here we are, Lionel. Ring the bell, John. Say, <laughs> hey, I wonder if we've got the right house. Good evening, boys. Good evening. Welcome to Shea Rute Valley, where our motto is, nothing is too good for our guests. It's very nice of you to invite us to dinner, Rudy. Yes, it is. Uh, now, about the contract. Oh, that can wait. Make yourselves at home. There's a phonograph in the den if you'd like to play some good music. Thanks, Rudy. Uh, how do you work it? Nothing to it. Just put a nickel in the slot. <laughs> Excuse me, I'll be back in a minute. Lionel, can you imagine that guy? And I thought your girdle was tight. <laughs> uh, let's play number seven. Rudy Valley and the Musketeers singing friendly tavern poker. Here's a slug, Lionel. Music is playing, dancers are swaying, laughing away each care. 
Down at the friendly tavern, everyone's happy there. Lights are all twinkling, glasses are tinkling, romances in the air. Down at the friendly tavern, nothing else can compare. There's where find the cheer, meet the friends we hold so dear. Round up the old quartet and sing a song together. Time to get started, gay and lighthearted, no need to ask the square. Down at the friendly tavern, everyone's happy there. So fill up your time, boys, we'll give a toast, and then we'll drink it down at the friendly tavern. They always buy a And then we'll drink it down at the friendly tavern. They'll always buy a lot. So come on, music is playing, dances are swaying, laughing away each care. Down at the friendly tavern, everyone's happy there. Oh, time to get started, gay and lighthearted, no need to act to spare. Down at the friendly tavern, everyone's happy there. How about dinner, boys? Yes, uh, but how about the contract? Oh, don't worry about that, Lionel. I have faith in your ability, and I hope you like my terms. It's a typical valley contract. He has faith and hope, and you get charity. <laughs> oh, how droll. How very droll. Well, we'll discuss it at dinner. What are you going to have, the $6 dinner or the 7 Why, what's the difference? With the $7 dinner, you get knives and forks. Oh, how nice. Well, what do we get with the $6 dinner? Bicarbonate of soda. Now, look here. How much is this dinner going to cost us? Let's see. $7 dinner, $3 cover charge, 60 cents an hour for the ping-pong table. I don't play. 10 cents for watching. <laughs> Nothing's too good for our guests. I can't stand it. Let's come out of here. Let me out. Me out. Calm down, calm down, John. Uh, Rudy, uh, John isn't feeling well, and you'll have to excuse us. But, but I have a splendid idea. Why don't you come to our house tomorrow night as our guest? Splendid, Lionel. How do I get to your place? Oh, very simple, Rudy. Very simple. You just follow the ocean drive as far as Malibu Beach. There you'll see a long pier. Turn left and drive out onto the pier until you see a big gap in the railing. Then head for this gap and step on the gap. But if I do that, I'm liable to fall into the water. Nothing's too oh, good no. for our for guest. our point, we have a great dramatic pretense talk for you. From Shakespeare's famous play, King Richard III, we have extracted a combination of scenes to be played by Lionel and John Paramore. Here's the setting. The deformed Richard, Duke of Gloucester, with the wars over, loses no time in furthering his evil schemes to become king. He tells the king of an old prophecy that he should someday be deprived of his throne by a relative whose name begins with the letter G. In this foul manner, Richard secretly plots the destruction of his own brother, George. Presenting Lionel Barrymore as George, the Duke of Clarence, and John Barrymore as his brother, Richard. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. Grim visage war hath smoothed his wrinkled front, and now instead of mounting barbed steeds, he capers to the pleasing of a lute. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, and are made to court an amorous looking glass, I deformed, unfinished. The dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why, I in this weak, Piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant upon my own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, I am determined to prove a villain. 
plots have I laid by foolish prophecies to set me brother George and King Edward in deadly hate the one against the other. Dive thoughts down to my soul. My brother come. Ah, brother, good day. What means this armed guard that waits upon your grace? His majesty hath appointed this conduct to convey me to the tower. Upon what cause, my brother, may I know? Nay, Richard, when I know, for I protest as yet I do not. What does I can learn? King Edward hearkens after prophecies and dreams and says a wizard told him that by G his issue disinherited should be. And for my name of George begins with G, it follows in his thoughts that I am he. Ah, we are the king's abjects and must obey. Brother, farewell. This deep disgrace in brotherhood touches me deeper than you can imagine. Uh, I know it pleaseth neither of us well. Well, your imprisonment shall not be long. I will deliver you. Meantime, have patience. I must perforce. Farewell. Go tread the path that thou shalt ne'er return, simple, plain George. I do love thee so that I will shortly send thy soul to heaven, if heaven will take the present at our hands. <laughs> Thus, George, without knowledge of Richard's treachery, is taken to the tower, where one day he awakens with a start from a terrible dream. Oh, I've passed a miserable night, so full of ugly sights of ghastly dreams. Methought I'd broken from the tower and was embarked across to Burgundy, and in my company, my brother Richard, who from my cabin tempted me to walk upon the hatches. Upon the giddy footing of the hatches, methought that Richard stumbled and in falling struck me overboard into the tumbling billows of the main. Oh, Lord, methought, what pain it is to drown. What dreadful noise of waters in my ears. But then began the tempest to my soul. I have done those things which now bear evidence against my soul for Edward's sake, and see how he repays me. Oh, God, if my deep prayers cannot appease thee, execute thy wrath in me alone. Or spare my guiltless wife and my poor children. My soul is heavy, and I fain would sleep. Thank you. Thank you, Lionel and John, for giving us this opportunity to hear the words of the immortal bard. You're most welcome, Rudy. I only hope the immortal bar didn't leave anybody mortally bored. I could say not. It was thrilling. It was really great to have you with us, Lionel. Thank you. Thank you, Rudy. I'm sorry to go. Ah, Lionel. Lionel. Parting is such sweet sorrow. But you must be at MGM tomorrow. Hey, too, Rudy. Hey, good night, all. Thursday, John and I shall have the great pleasure of greeting that brilliant young actor whose modesty is as winning as his talent is great, Orson Welles. Together we shall cohort through a music comedy of life behind the microphones entitled Radio, Radio, Wherefore Art Thou Radio. This is Rudy Valley saying au revoir and good night. And that was Rudy Valley, Lionel Barrymore, and the great profile himself, Mr. John. Barrymore. Absolutely brilliant. 
Well, that is it for this week. If you're a patron slash co-producer, then I hope you listened to the bonus show last week containing a review of hilarious thriller Blind Alibi. There's another bonus show on its way to you this week where I'll be telling you about a particularly brutal film noir drama. Next week, Attaboy Clarence is going noir. And incidentally, this month's film club will be a noir thriller too. If you want the bonus stuff and to get your hands on an invite to film club, go to patreon.com slash attaboysecrets or click the link in the show notes. Only takes a moment and you'll instantly gain access to hundreds of hours of bonus content. Hopefully I'll see you there. That is all for Attaboy Clarence this week then. I'll see you next week where we'll be stepping into the shadows. So until then, take awfully good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.